0: Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind the scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up and coming debut writers about their books. Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Today we're speaking with Louisa Hall, who is the author of the novel Speak, The Carriage House. Her poems have been published in the New York Republic, Southwest Review, and other journals. She is a professor at the University of Iowa and Western, writer in residence at Montana State University. Today we'll discuss Trinity, her latest novel. Hi, I'm Diane Burroughs of the Academic Marketing Department of HarperCollins Publishers, and I'm here today speaking to Louisa Hall, the author of Speak and Trinity. We're going to focus on her new book, Trinity. So, Oppenheimer, I mean, I really was amazed by the detail that you got. I mean, Jean is driving a green Plymouth, (laughs) and when I did my little Googling, sure enough, there it was. So... How much research did you do? I mean I did a lot of research
1: but luckily there are several magisterial biographies of Oppenheimer out there um, so I had a lot of great resources at my fingertips and it was really important to me in writing it that um, anything that I wrote about actual historical characters like Oppenheimer or Jean was based on something that I knew was true so Jean's car is the correct color <laughs> and um, you know Oppenheimer reads books that I know he read and he quotes lines that I know he quoted, and. Um, it's. I gave myself freedom with the narrators; We're all fictional characters, but um, it was important to me to not alter the lives of real people.
0: Well, I was. I was amazed that you told the story through those seven narrators, and they you really see Oppenheimer through them and how he touched everybody's lives within that context. I mean, he's touched everyone in this room. Life, mm-hmm. you know. I'm a duck and cover kid, mm-hmm. you know. So to yeah. be known as the father of the atomic bomb yeah. is such an incredible burden. Yeah. And what does that really mean? And I think as you explore it through these characters, it really becomes clear how what a burden this was for him. Yeah. Now can I ask a weird question? Because there are seven of them and they go from like around 19 1940s in the in the middle of the desert to Princeton in 1966 in his office um, in Princeton, journalists interviewing him. What do they really all have in common? (laughs) Um, I mean, I think what they have in common is an obsessive
1: interest with trying to understand Oppenheimer and trying to understand the time in which they live, which was a very violent time period. They lived through the Second World War, and um, in that moment when we dropped the atom bomb, we sort of took on the guilt of um, having used the most violent apocalyptic weapon that had ever been used. And um, they're all sort of obsessed with figuring out um, the violence that they feel in their lives So,
0: I, I felt for Sam who is the FBI agent um, he really is one of those people he's paid to watch mm-hmm. but really not to do <laughs> um, and he's deceived in his own life too he can't break through um, and even Grace who is this young woman on the Manhattan Project but she's really I think in the end discovers how insignificant she is mm-hmm. yeah. you know yeah I think that is what moved me about all these characters the
1: reason I didn't write from the perspective of actual historical characters was because I just was in this moment in my own life of doubting my ability to know other people and um so writing from the perspective of real historical characters I just felt this sort of fundamental doubt how can I really know them um But it ended up becoming an even more interesting project for me as I was writing in these fictional um, characters' voices because they're so marginal to the historical moment, and they're all struggling with whether they really exist, whether they really are important people, whether they can alter the flow of history at all. And of course they can't because they're fictional, but I think a lot of us feel the same way in our lives. Like, I doubt my ability to alter the course of history. I don't know whether the ruling leaders of this land are paying attention to me, and I think um, we sort of all live as slightly fictional characters in the country that we live in, and
0: it's a strange, liminal, weird, insecure way of living. Right, and I think, you know, you, you feel powerless, but somebody like Oppenheimer, at certain points in his life, he was very powerful. Yeah, yeah. And then he got cast aside. Yeah. And so I thought it was very intriguing to see his old friend in Paris. Yeah, yeah. Sort of see him at this point where he's sort of going to start the long slide down
1: yeah
0: um and that i thought i thought it was an amazing quote here from the character's ex-wife said i can't force you to remember what you don't want to and i think she was speaking to his friend but i Mm -hmm. think that was really very much oppenheimer as well Mm -hmm. can you speak to his own self-delusion
1: yeah, I mean, one thing that I was amazed by reading biographies of Oppenheimer was any time he told a narrative of his life, I was completely unpersuaded by it. It just felt like he—and also they differed so much. You know, I felt like he spent his entire life trying to correctly
0: and vividly tell the story of his life, but he just didn't know how to do it. I, I got the feeling, um, especially um, in his office in, I guess, about 1966— um, when he's being interviewed by a, a journalist, Helen, who's going through her own doubts about the world and her place in it. Yeah. And he just, he could not explain himself to her. Yeah. And she even says that. He says he cannot explain himself. He stops and he starts. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And I mean, it just his, all of the
1: ways that he used to talk to journalists about his life and to explain his role in history just seemed to me to fall fundamentally short. Um, which I think, I mean, I, I do think we struggle to tell the story of our lives and mm-hmm. to remember accurately what happened,
0: particularly the things we don't want to remember, which is something we're all dealing with in the news right now. Right, yes, it seems a very important book right now to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also have to say, I, I think that in your, both in the, the novel Speak, I've, it felt like it was the Pandora's box where suddenly this AI, the AI dolls are out into the world mm-hmm. and the, it, they were put out there with a really sense of hope mm-hmm. um, that really did not play out because mm-hmm. you can't control it once mm-hmm. it's out there. And I think there's a similar theme here mm-hmm. about what you put out into the world. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think I'm sort of moved by those stories of people who have acted um, with good intentions um, but just haven't understood sort of all of the factors at play. Oppenheimer's I find particularly moving because part of the reason he didn't understand was because the government was lying to him about how they were going to use the bombs and how many they were going to use. And um, so he really didn't know everything about the situation that he was in. But, um, you know, all of us are kind of acting with partial knowledge. We're in the present moment. Right. We don't have a historical vantage point. And um, it's just dangerous to act.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, I think you know, there's that image of the the person who's always looking back yeah. because that's all you can really see
1: yeah yeah exactly, you know? exactly.
0: um and I I felt but as I read the book you could see the shift his shifting life through theirs which was incredibly moving but there did did come a certain point where we hear him speak for himself mm-hmm. and again he's over repeatedly sort of Lying, mm-hmm. um, and he loses his security clearance at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Yet, continue wants to go on, mm-hmm. and he dies fairly young. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't really get to see the fruition of of all that ha- he had tried to do to yeah. correct the situation.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even in his security hearings, which was toward the end of his life, um, you hear him, you know, if you read the um, transcripts of them, it's really fascinating, but you hear him over and over say, I wish I could explain better why I acted in the way that I did. Um, And, you know, in some ways, I find that more moving than him trying to falsely come up with a, a, you know, a lie that would explain it before his understanding is complete, but... um, it's it's still you know it's just kind of disturbing. We all act without complete understanding of how we're acting and who we're going to be hurting and how we're going to alter
0: history. And um. yeah, and I, I felt I felt Sally, who was his secretary, that character, um, really is during that security yeah. hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it seemed really odd to me at this at, as I was reading it to realize that the H bomb test had happened just around that time. Mm-hmm. So in some ways. he he lost even more control. He was, Mm -hmm. in essence, irrelevant now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: I mean, and the the point about um, the hopefulness of AI going out into the world is a really interesting one because actually when you go back and read the scientists' account, the original Los Alamos scientists' account at the time, they were just as hopeful. They thought that... Many of them thought that the bomb wouldn't be used. It would just be tested in the middle of nowhere and it would end warfare forever because people would see that we could destroy the entire planet. And seeing that, they would be cowed into peace forever. Um, which you can, I can kind of understand feeling that before history yeah, happens.
0: <laughs> you can, I mean, what was it called, the weapon to end the use of all weapons? Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think we, you know, maybe somebody might have mentioned to them that um, Nobel felt that way about dynamite as yeah. well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, i like the person who came up with um, the gas that was used, you know, to gas
1: everybody in the world. The Mustard gas. Yeah, um, exactly, it was ending world hunger and... Um, so many of these technological developments started on good, hopeful notes.
0: <laughs> and, and I have one final question for you. Um, actually, I have, I have to ask our teacher question, too. Um, but this is my final question for you. Um, how, how did you fall in love with science?
1: Yeah, I mean, I actually, I think I sort of trace that back to just my own education and the wonderful teachers I had. But I had a teacher in high school who, um, my biology teacher, who just only taught through stories. He sort of clipped out amazing long-form journalism stories about biology, and we read them. And um, it just felt as though these stories about science contain so much about humanity, so much about our desire to get to the truth, our desire to understand, our desire to understand perfectly, which then, you know, never works out. Um, so just so much of what it is to be human seemed to exist in these stories about yes. science. And ever since then, I think I've been drawn to to those as a result.
0: Well, you know, you, you anticipated my question, because, you know, <laughs> we, we do this for, for teachers and for professors. And my question was going to be, who is your most influential teacher? <laughs> oh, so many. Um,
1: actually, my mom was a teacher at my high school, so I feel oh, like I should probably cool. say okay. my mom. <laughs> <laughs> what did but, she teach? She taught English, but and then she became a college counselor. But um, yeah, I mean, also my dad was a teacher. He then became a lawyer, but um, I think his lifelong love was teaching. So he sort of used his two children as an opportunity to, um, you know, to be a teacher throughout his life. And oh, nice. I just, um, you know, attribute so much of my desire to learn and to write and to study to him
0: and so you teach now too yes I do yeah, that's so exciting give me a, give me a sense of what your what your students are hopeful
1: for um well they're learning creative writing and they're great I teach at Montana, Montana State University yeah. now and then I'm going to be teaching at um, University of Iowa next yeah. year but um, my Montana students
0: are terrific they're writing all kinds of interesting stories okay it's nice to see it's still so going out in the world yeah. people are <laughs> writing and hopeful yeah all right. thank you so much <laughs> thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.